I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Chicano Squad. With HPD's back against a wall following the Moody Park riots, police chief Harry Caldwell greenlights a bold experiment in an attempt to regain the trust of the Latino community. Detective Jim Montero puts together a special assignment squad of five Spanish-speaking patrol officers, including Cecil Mosqueda. They will be tasked with helping solve the rising flood of unsolved murders in Houston's Latino neighborhoods. With the tension between the Houston Police Department and the city's Latino population reaching a boiling point, this young, unproven squad is a make-or-break gamble for everyone. When Cecil Mosqueda was still a rookie patrol officer in Houston, he'd taken a second job as a security guard. By day, Cecil wore Houston blue. On weekend nights, he worked at one of Houston's popular Latino-owned bars. It was the original Island Club. Cecil loved the job. Picture this. I'm standing there. I'm a young cop. Everybody's drinking. You're in a club. You're having a good time. You're on top of your world. The extra gig padded his pockets with some spending money, and it kept him doing what he loved more than anything else, policing. But the job was more than just a paycheck. They hired me as a security officer to work there. And I got to know the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Baltazar. Over the years he worked there, the Baltazars became more like family to Cecil. They ran a tight ship at the Island Club, and they kind of had to. The bar was in the Denver Harbor neighborhood of Houston, an industrial part of town that was pretty rough around the edges back then. Cecil even remembers hearing a story about how Mrs. Baltazar's own brother was killed in the bar while playing pool late one night. The murder had gone unsolved. She went through a hard time with that, you know, dealing with that. Fast forward, you know, life continues on. Now she's got a little sister there, and she's working part-time. That little sister was Diana Trevino. And just around the time that Cecil started at the Island Club, Diana, who was 21 or 22 at the time, started working regularly as a bartender. Diana was also a new mother to a young baby boy, who she would proudly show off. I had my little girl at the same time, and I could kind of relate, and she was just so excited about her little baby. She loved her child so much, and that's what kind of sticks in my mind. As Cecil went from being a patrol officer to being given a new special assignment on a homicide squad, he had to say goodbye to the Island Club gig. He left the club when the time it required became too much. But the Baltasar family was never far from Cecil's heart. Then, one day, Cecil's phone rang. It was the breathless voice of Mr. Baltasar on the other end. He says, look, I see my sister-in-law. I said, what about your sister-in-law? He says, my sister-in-law is missing. We don't know where she's at. Diana Trevino, 
Mrs. Baltazar's then 28-year-old sister, the young mother, had left a family party one night and hadn't returned. Her disappearance would pull Cecil into a case he'd never forget and put a personal face on a new crime wave sweeping Houston at precisely the moment Cecil Mosqueda and four other Latino officers were entering the fray. These special assignment officers would become known as the Chicano Squad. I'm Crispel Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. A change had come to the Houston Police Department's headquarters at 61 Reasoner Street, though at first, few outside of the building could tell. But inside, on the third floor, past the press room where local journalists worked and down the hall towards the homicide division, was a small room with a single desk and typewriter. This space, about as big as a storage closet, was designated for HPD's newest special assignment officers. It was in this room, on Monday, August 20th, 1979, that Detective Jim Montero's all-Latino dream team assembled for the first time. Cecil Mosqueda and four other officers had turned a few heads when they walked into 61 Reasoner that morning, wearing new suits, freshly shined shoes, and the kind of facial hair you could only get away with in the 70s. Jim Montero had handpicked the guys himself. A few of them, like Cecil Mosqueda and his partner, the athletic Bobby Gatewood, had cut their policing teeth with him in the Northeast Patrol Division. There was Jose Vera Jr., a Vietnam veteran, U.P. Hernandez, who had relatives in law enforcement, and the oldest of the officers, Jose de Leon, who was 38. They were all patrol officers. They had almost no investigative training. Aside from Jim Montero, none of them had taken the detective's exam or knew more than what they learned in the academy about homicides. But like Jim... All of them spoke Spanish. All of them grew up in Houston's Latino neighborhoods. And all of them understood life in these neighborhoods where crimes were routinely unsolved. Now, Cecil and the guys crammed into their new office. We're just talking and cutting it up. And uh, Lieutenant calls us in and he says, okay. And he does his introduction. And then he got right to business. Since January, they were told, there had been 395 homicides, including 90 victims with Spanish surnames. 52 of those cases were unsolved. Nobody's been able to work them. I want you to start reviewing these cases and tell us what you think about these. Then came the catch. 
their special assignment had been greenlit by HPD for just 90 days. 90 days to solve the murders that no one else could solve before them? No pressure at all. Now, experts today recommend a caseload of five cases per detective for an entire year to give them the best chance to solve them. So if you followed that recommended average caseload, it would take the squad at least a year and a half to get through 52 open homicides. And that's without any new cases coming in, which they certainly were. They needed to make a serious dent in the 52 and growing number of unsolved murder cases in the Latino neighborhoods, and fast. And if they couldn't, then Chief Caldwell and HPD would have to end this experiment and try something else. The lieutenant instructed them to come into his office to pick up their cases. You've got to remember, these were the days before computerized records. Everything was on paper. If you were lucky, it was typed. Pair by pair, the officers filed in and picked up the folders. Me and Joe walk in there, and he gives us about 10 to 15 cases. And the lieutenant says, okay, I'm going to give you all these cases. I want you guys to review it and see what you come up with. As Cecil and the others started reading through them, the reality started to hit. There were a lot of whodunits. And I said, a lot of these cases haven't been worked. They're just sitting there. They're not even being worked. And that's how we started. The cases the special assignment officers had just been handed had scant details and almost no clues. They were what's called, as Cecil put it, whodunits. Cases that were, if you believe the white detectives who had initially worked them, unsolvable. In the beginning, what I found out about a homicide, some cases had solvability factors. A smoking gun. Dying declarations, witnesses, you know, stuff like that. And so the detective, if it's solvable, well, they would keep it because it's got solvability factors. It wasn't a whodunit, but it was solvable. So they wanted to keep it, get that credit. I learned that pretty quick. Cecil and the squad were going to have to become investigators, despite the fact that none of them had been trained to investigate anything more than a patrol call. Most of the cases that we had were all whodunits. They were not the smoking guns. There were bodies laying on the street, bodies laying on the ditches, bodies found on abandoned places. Whodunits. Officially, on paper, the guys were translators. In reality, they were working these whodunits on their own. None of us knew what we were up against. And then after that first day, we were reviewing reports and we sat out there and, and, and we read and what we were going to do, how we were going to do it. The reports were poorly written and riddled with leads that had gone uninvestigated. Unlike with white victims, it seemed like when a Latino in Houston was killed, there wasn't much investigating done. For two days, the squad poured over their whodunits. On day three, the lieutenant checked in. Had they read through their cases? Yes, the officers replied. Okay, he told them. You're ready. And we took off from there with minimal, minimal, minimal training. As Cecil and the guys prepared to hit the streets, they faced several obstacles. First, the situation on the ground was intense. 
Houston was in the middle of an extraordinary crime wave. According to analysis conducted by an HPD researcher, in 1976, there were 321 people murdered in Houston. Within two years, that number had grown by 50% to 484 murders in Space City, USA. By the fall of 1979, Houston was experiencing its deadliest year in history. Immediately, the Latino officers faced an overwhelming caseload. Of the 395 homicides since January, 90 involved victims with Spanish surnames. When it comes to solving murders, time is key. As each day passes, suspects get further away. Witnesses' memories grow hazier and evidence becomes lost. Now, Cecil and the squad were sitting on 52 of those cases, where trails had long since gone cold. 52 whodunits handed to three pairs of officers was exceptional. They were not being solved because of a language barrier. We needed to go into the community and build that bridge. And that led to the second big issue facing them. Cecil and the guys knew that to build that confidence and regain the trust of the Latino community, they had to start solving the murders that were plaguing the neighborhoods where they lived. But getting the community to trust them, that was going to be a big challenge. To some in the Latino community, guys like Cecil were not only no better than the white cops, perhaps they were even worse. They were traitors. Adrian Garcia, a former policeman, city councilman, and county sheriff, who is now a Harris County commissioner, remembers that feeling as well. Some of my friends stopped talking to me after I told them I joined the police department, thought I was a sellout. So I got some of the same blowback that they were giving the Hispanic officers. But it wasn't just critics from the community that Cecil and the other guys were facing. There were also serious obstacles within HPD's own ranks. I remember one time I was in the elevator and there was one detective every morning he would get in there. Hey, what's going on? What's going on, Bato? What's going on? He would talk like that. He was just making these Spanish slurs, you know. So one day, he kept on, and I turned around, and I said, Sir, why do you talk to me like that? And I said, you have speech impediments or what? I don't talk like that. No question. Racism was rampant at HPD. But there was another layer to the criticism of the squad. To some at the Houston Police Department, the squad members had jumped the line. J.J. Garcia, the reporter who spent many nights glued to the press room outside the homicide office waiting for a story, remembers it well. Oh, God, the, uh, the detectives hate them, hated them. The regular detectives, you know, they, they felt they hadn't paid their dues. To some officers waiting to be promoted, this new special assignment seemed like a way for these Latino officers to cut in line. I remember a detective telling me that I really didn't belong in the specialized division. He says, I don't understand why you're here. And I told him, I said, well, I'm doing a job that you can't handle. I'm doing your job plus my job. And he turned around and he says, no, because you're not a detective. And he says, I know why you're here, because you're Hispanic. He said, but other than that, you're not smart enough to be detective. 
And after being told he wasn't smart enough to make detective, Cecil didn't take it lying down either. And when he told me that, I made up my mind right there and then. I said, I'm going to promote to be a detective and show the world that I'm not as stupid as I look. Despite the limited resources, the overwhelming number of homicides, and the public scrutiny, Cecil remembers being eager to take on the challenge. All I know is that for me personally, I saw it as an opportunity. It was almost like the door opened momentarily and they let me put my foot out for just a little bit. But Cecil and the guys had their work cut out for them. With so much stacked against them and almost no training, would the squad be able to solve the stacks of homicides they'd been handed? More after the break. In addition to working their own whodunit cases, the squad's other primary function was to act as translators for detectives as new homicide cases poured in. On one of his first days, Cecil was called to go out with a white detective, or Anglo, as he would put it, who was looking for someone in connection with the murder of a security guard. He told Cecil that they were looking for a man named Flaco. And off they went, to the East End, a Spanish-speaking neighborhood. Cecil and the detective began to go door to door. And I remember I'm just following the detectives, this Anglo detective, and it's his case. I'm just kind of going out there. We're looking for a guy named Flaco. So we're going to be knocking on these doors, and it's all Hispanic community. I was uh, following him in my suit, looking pretty, you know, and he's knocking on the door, and lady comes out. He said, I'm looking for a guy named Flaco. And people kind of looked at him and said, no, no, you don't say nothing, I see, no. They continued to knock on door after door until finally something clicked for Cecil. And it dawned on me, oh my God. I said, no wonder they didn't know who Flaco was. He's not looking for Flaco, he's looking for Flaco. Flaco, a nickname that also clued them in on how the guy might look. Cecil quickly adjusted his pronunciation, and almost immediately they got a lead. They found Flaco, who was then able to help them solve the murder. Within the first week, the Latino officers were proving themselves to be invaluable. Their homicide cases often went like this. A body would drop. HPD would be called. A homicide detective would arrive on the scene and start to work it. And if they ran into a hurdle, a suspect or witness who spoke Spanish, the white detectives would fill out a yellow sheet listing the items still left to do. That sheet would get passed to Cecil and the other special assignment officers. We were working other cases for the other detectives. If they needed help, they would call us out. Hey, come and help me with this guy. We need an interrogation. We need an interview. We need to take a statement. And so, very quickly, though the job was billed as translating, the reality of the situation on the ground required much more. First of all, it was too many homicides. We didn't have enough detectives, so we took a load off of them because we took most of the Hispanic cases. The problem is, is that the other detectives were abusing the whole deal. The squad was working cases that weren't theirs. They'd show up hours after the lead detective had been at a scene 
and get to work interviewing neighbors or relatives or interrogating potential Spanish-speaking suspects at the station. The thirst to talk to someone, to communicate, I could see it, we could feel it. They would, the people would just open their, their hearts towards us because we were able to communicate. Plenty of the people Cecil talked to had never talked to a Spanish-speaking officer before, let alone a Spanish-speaking investigator. We made them feel like, you are part of the community. I'm not an immigration officer. You were a victim, and I'm going to treat you as a victim. And once the word got out, they, they trusted us. They, they'd say, well, we're going to cooperate. In one story Cecil remembers, and this one is kind of amazing, he and Joe drove to a woman's house in search of her daughter, whom they had a warrant to arrest. So they get to her door, and she opens it. And then... She said, I'll make food for y'all guys if y'all want to. Of course, we were all eaters. I said, oh, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> the woman invited them in for dinner. After they ate, they arrested the woman's daughter and left the home. In case this sounds strange, I can assure you this is pretty typical. In the Latino community I grew up in, if you show up at the door, you're our guest. We're going to feed you and ask you if you need anything. There was so much to learn. The more you did it, the better you got. Now I'll tell you what, you didn't learn this stuff overnight. They even started their own filing system so they could track all of the individuals they interviewed. After each one, a squad member used a Polaroid to snap a photo and wrote the person's name beneath it, then attached it to written reports. And this filing system would prove absolutely vital to their work. In a city full of new and often undocumented immigrants, there was an entire group of Houstonians that simply didn't exist in the public record. The squad was trying to fix that problem, one Polaroid at a time. With every Polaroid, Every call they went out on with white detectives and every case of their own they worked, they were changing the game. As the end of their first 30 days approached, the squad was already getting into a groove. We just kept on working. We were all 24, 25, 26. We were all young, full of energy, and we were all just going all. We were unstoppable. At the end of 60 days, they had bonded as a unit. Well. The original five, we were a tight group. We were so tight. We all worked as a group. We worked as one unit. As the squad supervising lieutenant told the Houston Chronicle, the longer they're here, the more valuable they become. Officers in the general homicide unit would rotate overnight shifts, but the squad members could expect to get called to a scene any hour of the day or night. They'd often leave the office at midnight only to be called back to work at 2 or 3 a.m. It was becoming clear that the special assignment would be around for a while. But something still felt impermanent. The group of officers didn't have an official name. That's where J.J. Garcia came in. He sat down the hall from the squad near the elevators. J.J. was the journalist who had served as an informal translator for white detectives. 
One day, Jim Montero asked JJ to meet him and a few of the officers at Andy's Home Cafe, a Tex-Mex restaurant still operating today in Houston's Heights neighborhood, serving comfort food around the clock. He arrived and found Jim, along with Joe Salvera and Cecil Mosqueda. Joe and Mosqueda were partners, and they were dang good. What should we call ourselves, they asked JJ. As a young Latino boy in Corpus Christi, a Texas town on the Gulf of Mexico, J.J. had experienced plenty of racism. A lot of shit that I went through in Corpus Christi, getting beat up because I was a Chicano, you know. A favorite taunt that J.J. Garcia's bullies used was to call him a Mexican, something that really angered him. We're not Mexicans! We were born in this country. My dad served this country in World War II. My cousin, seven of them, went to World War II. One of them never came home. Why were we called Mexicans? Now, the word Chicano has kind of a complicated history. Early on, most people think it was typically used by upper-class Mexican-Americans to refer to lower-class Mexican-Americans, so it was probably derogatory. But by the 1960s in America... The word had been reclaimed and popularized. To J.J. Garcia and many others, the term was a positive one, one that described their cultural identity as Americans of Latin descent. That's what it was for me, too. I was raised knowing that when people use the word Chicano, it is out of love for their culture. And it's a Chicano squad, and they liked that, and then they, we named it. The Chicano squad would be their official name. J.J. Garcia wrote stories about the cases worked by the squad and helped spread the word about their new name. It caught on immediately. In print, on the radio, and on TV, stories of the newly formed homicide unit of Latino officers echoed the name J.J. Garcia had coined. Six Houston police officers working out of a cubbyhole of an office with a Mexican flag on the wall are trying to gain something often missing in relations between police and Hispanics. Trust. The officers, five patrolmen, and a detective are members of the Chicano Squad, a name they say was put on them by the news media and a name that has stuck. Their task is one that has frequently frustrated veteran homicide detectives, solving murder cases involving mainly Spanish-speaking witnesses and suspects. The media coverage showcased their work, featuring photos and video footage of the five handsome, dark-haired officers. And, of course, those mustaches. But not everyone in the community was convinced. Travis Morales, who, if you remember, was the activist who'd been at the trial of Jose Campos Torres and later at the Moody Park riot, had strong feelings then about the role of police officers in general, regardless of their race, and still does to this day. As we said at the time, what difference is is it going to make to have the cops speaking Spanish when they brutalize and murder someone? In South Africa at that time, under apartheid, there were a lot of black cops, but that didn't stop them from carrying out the the mission of the apartheid government to brutalize people and and repress them. The same in Houston. I mean, there are numerous other cases where Chicano and black cops have participated in murdering people and brutalizing them because that's the role of the police. It's a fair criticism that highlights just one of the complexities of race and policing. 
There wasn't going to be any singular magic solution to the crime plaguing Houston's Latino community. But there was at least one reason to believe that the Chicano squad were filling a critical role. Their central mission wasn't to patrol or police their neighborhoods. It was to solve homicides. Soon, 90 days had gone by, marking the end of the squad's trial run. And the results were in. In three months, the scrappy Chicano squad had helped to solve 40 homicides. It was an astounding number. In his first year on the squad, Cecil Mosqueda had gone from patrolman to talented homicide investigator. He'd arrive at crime scenes, on the side of the road, in alleyways, and in the city's cantinas, and read the clues white cops would have missed. And he'd find the killers responsible. But then, one cold November day in 1980, the work got very personal. A man had called the Chicano squad office looking for him. The caller's voice was breaking, delicate with emotion, teetering on the verge of tears. His wife's sister was missing. Her name? Diana Trevino. In an instant, Cecil could picture the young woman's face. The bartender who had worked part-time at the Island Club, alongside Cecil. She was at a party on a Saturday night. I get together with a family late at night. Now it's two, three o'clock. So he says, look, she didn't show up and it wasn't like her. What happened to her? Cecil's former boss, Mr. Baltasar, implored him to help. So Cecil started to work the case, even though missing persons cases didn't fall under homicide's purview. I started following up leads, trying to find out what happened. They retraced her steps home that night driving from the bar to Diana's relative's house and then to her apartment building, where Cecil found a single shoe outside of her undisturbed car. To Cecil, it seemed obvious that she'd been abducted. You know, there's no leads. She just disappeared. A few days later, Cecil was in the homicide office one day when he heard that Houston police were working a homicide scene off Old McCarty Road in the oil fields. They found a female out there. It was around 1 p.m. when an oil field worker found the body of a 28-year-old woman in a ditch. She'd been stabbed several times, and there was evidence that she'd also been sexually assaulted. Officials identified the body as Diana's. There were no leads, no witnesses, no evidence. Cecil felt terribly for the family and wanted to help. I got other murder cases that I'm working on. That's not the only murder cases I'm working on. And I'm kind of trying to help the family as much as I can and trying to find leads, but there was no real leads. It was hard on Diana's family, which in some ways still felt to Cecil like his own. He tried to keep them together and stay focused on finding evidence and the person responsible. But the grief and the uncertainty was too much for some relatives. People start accusing one another, even your loved one. There was a lot of finger pointing. It just tore the family apart. Months, and then years, passed with no arrests. Every cop has that one case that haunts them. For Cecil, this was his. 
By 1981, Houston tallied 701 homicides, earning the nickname the murder capital of the United States. And an alarming number of those murder victims were Latino. HPD wanted to better understand what was happening, and to do so, they hired Houstonian professor and sociologist Tacho Mindiola. After an exhaustive search through HPD's homicide records, what he and his team found was that 235 of the Houston murder victims were Latino. All of those cases had gone to the five officers and one detective on the Chicano squad, a workload that would overwhelm any experienced unit. But somehow, the squad had managed to solve 40% of their cases, a huge improvement from where they'd started. The squad was making a difference, but the pace was overwhelming and the Chicano squad officers were exhausted. During the day, they moved as quickly as they could, often skipping meals to work through cases. At night, most other officers could relax, but the squad members' home phones never stopped ringing. There was so much, so many cases, and the squad's work ethics are totally different than everybody else. When I got off at four o'clock, this was my tour, eight to four. I didn't work from eight to four. I worked from eight to twelve, eight to one, eight to three. But next morning I was there. This was true for almost all of the guys on the squad. No matter how much overtime was required, they did it. Jim Montero realized there was no way around it. They simply needed more manpower. He requested more Spanish-speaking officers. HPD's chief ultimately approved Montero's wishes, and in October of 1982, the squad got three additional patrol officers and a new detective. And the squad was also hoping to get a few more detectives from within their own ranks. After months of studying at night and on weekends and facing down the naysayers in HPD, Cecil and Bobby Gatewood made the leap to take the detective's exam. Bobby had been the first to pass. Now all eyes were on Cecil. This was huge for him. If you remember, he'd been the only cadet to fail his first civil service test in the academy. In order to be promoted, officers had to have a few years of experience on patrol and be able to pass a written exam and an assessment. The test was and remains the hardest part. As officers rise in the ranks of a police department, they are often able to take time off to study for a promotional exam, but not at first. Cecil crammed as much as he could. When the exam results came in, Cecil had passed. It was an incredible moment. Out of a couple hundred officers who'd taken the test, Cecil ranked 53rd. Luckily. The department had 58 detective spots to fill, as he recalled. I didn't have to prove anything to anyone, but I wanted to prove to myself and also them, and I did. Cecil had made it. He was officially Detective Cecil Mosqueda. Things didn't slow down for the newly minted Detective Mosqueda and the rest of the squad. In 1983, there were 215 Latino murders assigned to the Chicano squad. At home, Cecil's own marriage was rocky and needed his attention. But Cecil had little time for his wife and daughter. He was devoted to the Chicano squad. It really destroyed my personal life. 
Did I get used to it? Yes. I didn't have that eight to four, go home and take the kids to, to the ball game and do that. I, I didn't have that luxury. I missed out a lot. Eventually, Charlene had had enough and wanted more for herself and her daughter than a husband who was always at work. After 10 years of marriage, Charlene left Cecil and filed for divorce. But as Cecil's personal life was crumbling, a break came in the Trevino case. A man, James Emery Pastor, was charged with murder in connection with the death of a man outside a nightclub. And while awaiting trial, he'd confessed to another killing. Diana Trevino. Pastor and two accomplices had been on a crime spree when they'd randomly spotted Diana driving home. She was a very attractive girl, and they just kind of followed her around. They followed her all the way into her apartment complex. Most likely, Diana had no idea she had been followed. Once they reached her apartment, the men waited for her to park. And then... They abducted her, and they stabbed her and dumped her off. It would take years still, but in 1989, after lengthy appeals, Pastor and one of his co-conspirators were executed. The third took a plea bargain and testified against his accomplices for a 35-year sentence. Even after the executions, Cecil didn't feel closure. And he still felt a world of hurt for the family he was once so close with. Eventually, Cecil lost touch with the Baltasars. But the pain never went away. What was life all about with this young lady? It was her child. She was a young mother. She loved her baby. And she had her whole life ahead of her. And she didn't deserve that. And even though I've, it was solved, it never heals. Uh, the family never really heals. Cecil would never visit the Island Club again. Just as the Chicano squad officers were getting things dialed in, the city of Houston, as they knew it, was about to slip away. At first, there were small changes on the streets of Houston that signaled something in the city was different. The local cuisine changed ever so slightly. Instead of tacos, some street vendors started selling pupusas. But another Houston police officer, a rookie patrol officer named Jaime Escalante, was catching wind of bigger changes taking place. Jaime noticed Houston's demographics begin to shift while on patrol with his partner. When I was working the Fifth Ward, I had a partner named Walter Eaton from Louisiana. He goes, hey, Escalante, do you want to ride with me? And I said, yeah, let's ride together. So he goes, this guy's talk kind of funny. And I go, that's Spanish. He says when he asked around about them, who were they? What were they doing? He learned they were from Colombia. And they were selling cocaine. He tried to pass their tip off to the narcotics division. But Jaime says detectives there didn't believe he was telling the truth. They're selling a lot of dope. So me and three other guys, they go, hey, there's a line of people outside his apartment. So back then, the gram was 100 bucks. So Jaime and two other patrol officers pulled their cash, scraping together $100. But obviously, they couldn't make the buy in their HPD uniforms. So I took my shirt off and went over my police pants, you know, get in line there. And man, he had a bunch of uh, stuff inside the apartment. And I said, man, this shit's stolen. 
Now let's be clear. Jaime was breaking some major rules by buying cocaine while on patrol in uniform. But as you'll come to know, that's kind of Jaime's thing. So we came out and uh, got a search warrant, went back and arrested him. And it was like a, he had like a half a kilo or a kilo of cocaine. And, and we recovered a bunch of stolen stuff, pistols and other stuff. So we go back to the narcotics and they go, God damn it, how did you guys get a kilo, man? It takes months to work a kilo of deal and all this shit. Jaime's gambit had paid off at first. So the following day, we go to work and the lieutenant uh, goes, I need to talk to you, you and you in my office. And he goes, what the fuck were you guys doing? Are you fucking stupid or what? He goes, you can't be doing stuff like that, Escalante. And I said, well, narcotics didn't want to do anything about it. So he says, you know, we're fired. Until? And then like uh, 10 minutes later, he comes back and goes, we're starting the first TAC unit out of the police uh, department. He goes, and uh, I want you to be in it. TAC, or tactical unit, a specialized unit focused on specific types of crime. I said, Lou, you told me I was fired. Now I'm back. You rehired me. Do I have to fill some paperwork? It wouldn't be the first time Jaime was almost fired. But this firing had ended in a special assignment. A few months later, Officer Jaime Escalante and the rest of the TAC unit were stuck on the docks at the Port of Houston in the steamy summer, surveilling vessels through a pair of binoculars whose lenses kept fogging up from the humidity. He'd always wanted to be an undercover officer, and finally, he'd gotten a taste of it. For three days, Jaime Escalante slept on the docks, dodging rats as big as cats, praying that his informant's tip about one of the biggest shipments of cocaine to ever hit the port of Houston to date had been correct. Jaime had no idea, but his hunch was about to lead to one of the biggest drug cases in Houston's history and would lead him into the ranks of the Chicano squad at a time when the squad needed him most. The Colombian cartels had arrived in Houston. Next time on Chicano Squad, Officer Jaime Escalante finds himself at the center of one of the biggest drug busts in Houston's history and at the center of a seismic shift in the city's criminal landscape. The brutal violence the cartels bring with them threatens to unravel the gains the squad has started to make. When Jaime uncovers a rash of narcotics-related homicides he thinks he can solve, he's given a trial run on the Chicano squad. But he's only got six weeks to do it. En esta ciudad hay necesidad Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our producers are Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Bitubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nishat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design come from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was composed for the series by Brownout. Backchecking by Charlotte Silver. Special thanks to Mamie Garcia, Frida Villalobos, Ben Reyes, Jim Montero, and Dave Padilla. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nisha Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristel Alonso. 
If you like this episode and if you think the story is important, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell everyone. Find out more at FrequencyMachine.com slash Chicano Squad. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'll see you in episode five.